0: So without further ado, I I would like to um, uh, let Andrew introduce himself and take it from here. Andrew, uh, good morning.
1: Hey, good morning, John. Good to see you. Uh, Thanks for doing this. Um, Yeah, so my background is entrepreneur. Um, I raised probably over $300 million for my own ventures, and then I started my own venture capital fund some time ago. But... uh, The talk, uh, I was gonna talk just purely about AI, but I think I'm interested in the topic of valuation and maybe put together um, more of a focus discussion on valuations of startups, kind of the art and the science of that. And um, what what the economy, kind of the macroeconomic environment means to startups, angel investors, Venture capitalists and limited partners that invest in this vintage, um, and and maybe the impact of AI, and 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 uh, I I could see from looking at the people on this call, I know a lot of you, and so I wouldn't mind turning this into a little bit of a roundtable discussion. So I'll kind of get the conversation going. But you know, you know, what are the key building blocks of um, startup valuations? You know, I I often say if the most four important things in real estate are location, 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 I think the most important things in evaluating a startup just to invest in, regardless of the valuation, is sort of team, 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 market technology. So you don't want to invest in a company that's addressing just too small of a market. And technology is very important, but in my experience, when I got too caught up in technology and the opportunity and not enough on team, those are the ones that time has proven again and again to not work out. Um, So I think the key building blocks are, you know, what's the team? And there's a lot of methods for startups uh, to figure out how to bring on advisors and get some serious people into the deck that are truly backing it, maybe gift them some equity or... Say so it'd be really better if you could put some cash into this, and even get a small bit of funding, and that becomes an angel round. Um, obviously, technology is key. You know, we don't do anything that's not technology based, and you know, a lot of the investments we make have at least hundred thousand dollars of monthly reoccurring revenue, and so that revenue or other metrics of traction, you know, kind of become important. I think a key kind of way to understand what's in the mind of a venture capitalist or a professional experienced angel investor is, you know, if whatever the valuation is that you're raising at um, you got to kind of expect that there's going to be at least 50% dilution between now and the time of the exit. You know, one of the reasons people should be raising money from us is that we've been around for so long. We know just so many other VCs that, after we invest in your startup, we're going to introduce you to your next investors, and just you know make a you know a very organized Google document spreadsheet that lists that like the tier one VCs we want to go to first, and then we we in advance of even starting to make introductions, we list maybe another eighty or hundred that we'll go to you know as our second third choice investors to introduce them to. So so once you get into that kind of venture capital machine. Startups tend to raise a new funding round every nine to 18 months. So they typically raise for an 18 month or 24 month cash runway. And in the really early stages, that's not always possible. Founders don't want to sell too much stock while it's cheap. And so they're running, they're sailing a little closer into the wind, risking running out of cash quickly, which I don't like. I really like to see an 18 month runway minimum for software companies and even longer if it's hardware. We kind of haven't been very good hardware investors. So we're staying away from that more and more. But but um, if you have an 18 month runway that by the time you're 12 months in after that funding round, you've got six months before you hit a zero cash balance. And so you probably want to consider getting going on this next fundraise so that you can have a controlled fundraise and then if you close that within four months, say, you still have a st- a steady two months cash in the bank. And you know a lot of startups are getting hit by torpedoes or bumps in the road, and things don't run as smoothly as you hope. And certainly in today's market, compared to the spring and summer of 2021, which was kind of the peak of the frothiness, um, it's taking longer to get a-, a round done. But a key way of understanding in the mind of a VC or even how to price, how much money should we raise? What's the size of the round? And what should that valuation be? um, Is well, what can we sell it for? So if you assume, you know, like, every now and then you see some like blockchain, crazy over inflated round saying we're raising 50 million on a pre money of 150 million, and they don't even have a product, they don't have revenue. And that's just ridiculous. And professionals should walk away from that. But if you just you know want to have an intelligent conversation you say all right so if the pre money valuation if the pre is 150 million then to make a simple 10x return you've got to get liquid at 1.5 billion dollars and when you consider 50% dilution so now you're looking to get liquid and survive a lockup or something at a 3 billion dollar exit and you know you better hope that those canadian guys are going to take you public because what is the list of, of companies that would buy your business for $3 billion? You know, if for those that remember AdMob, I think that was like 850, you know, YouTube, it's like these, even these historical transformational exits that like made Google and Cisco um, are bigger than these numbers. And Our venture capital fund is doing better than 10X net of losses and management fee. So if you put 100K in our fund, you're getting over a million back. That's going to end if we start investing at 150 million pre's for a company that doesn't have real revenue to back that up. So, So the key takeaway is, what is a plausible exit for this business? And have a rational conversation of what would you get revenues to and maybe... What is 10X that top line? Or talk to some professional investment bankers about what are reasonable, plausible multiples for this kind of business. Every business is unique, but you kind of look at comparables and come up with uh, what is realistic. And is, the, uh, is that you know multiple of, if I invest at say a 10 million pre and we sell at a 250 million pre, um exit price and what would my my r- multiple be is that multiple commensurate with the risk of that stage you know and we'll talk more about what expectations are for early stage you know versus late stage you know obviously we were in a really bull bull market and you know coming out of covid with stimulus checks and everyone going digital and even us angels saying why meet in person if everyone's you know being completely digital doing this virtually and online but you know multiples typically for saas were around 12x historically for the public markets and then during covid things went nuts and again the spring summer of 2021 was sort of the peak you saw like 40 sec, 47x multiples which is truly insane if you think about you want to buy a business for cash and it's got $1 million of annual revenue. And it would take you with no growth and no whack or, or, or discounted, discounting future cash flows with an interest rate or a whack. you would take 47 years of owning that business just to get your money back, right? So you buy a business for 47 million as a 47X multiple of the 1 million. It's going to take you 47 years to get it back. And that's pretending the US government knows how to run its business, which it doesn't. So there's going to be massive inflation. So it's just a kind of a a, a sense of that. The public markets dropped down to like 5x, 5.3. And I think that you you are seeing companies like Salesforce getting 10x last 12 months. And there's sort of a nasty practice in the venture capital Silicon Valley world where People are are saying, well, the multiple on revenue is, but they're creeping forward. They're like saying, well, you know, the by the end of December 31st of this year, we expect to be at uh, 10 million. So give me 10x that. But I'm like, yo, dude, it's 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 June. You know, you're you're not you're not at that now. You know, why don't you do last 12 months like the stock market? So anyway, these multiples with like Putin invasion of Ukraine, we had like a total market correction, and things really dropped down. So there tends to be a bit of a lag between the stock market, the LP, limited partner community, and the uh, the VC, you know, mindset, and the founders. And especially when you have kind of touristy, unsophisticated angels, they're often like the last to get the memo. So you have these startups still running around, raising money, at pre market correction valuations and multiples, which is not great. And then the LPs immediately panic because they see that their stock market, if they wanted to be 40% in venture, all of a sudden they're 70% in venture because the venture hasn't marked down their valuations where the stock market is real time, you know, or so whatever they're, if they wanted to be 15%, all of a sudden they're 30% allocated and they stop investing in venture. So the big Sandhill Road guys have slowed down their pace because they are not raising LP capital as well as even the smaller guys like us. We continue to raise because people understand this is a good vintage to be in. Whereas like, you know, the Texas teacher pension fund, which is 30 billion pool of capital, just stops investing into, into venture. Um So Growth rates, you know, like how much revenue is growing year over year, month over month, in these early stage private companies is typically so much more than the steady state that, say, a Salesforce publicly traded company go to. So even if you're just using a discounted cash flow, if you play, if you play with G, you know, like the growth that really moves a model. So theoretically, you know, you should be looking at more than 10x uh, current revenue. When valuing a startup that has that has uh, that has revenue, you know. So I, I kind of think of 10x, 10x, not not GMV. That's like nonsense. If like, you know, we invested in a company called Todaytix that was selling theater tickets online, and um, they were always trying to base their multiples on their GMV, where they're paying like um, this is so long ago I forget what it is. They were paying like. 90% or 95% of that GMV to the theater company, you know, so, you know, I, 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 that doesn't pay for salaries or office rent or any expenses. So, you know, we look at real revenue, the net revenue, sometimes, you know, you're seeing six X revenue is not uncommon 12 X. Sometimes, um, you feel like you're overpaying. And it's not, but it's not out of control. And then a lot of you know, sort of, you know, I, I actually oscillate myself back and forth between being very sensitive to pricing and then sometimes saying, you know, this thing is either going to hit or it's not. And if it really hits, it'll be big. I remember turning down SoFi when they had a 350 million pre-money valuation, when they were pre-product, pre-revenue. And it turns out that that was my mistake for for not investing in that, being a little too price sensitive. Kind of um, it, on, on, you know, uh, when valuations get really big, the only, the only, you know, path to exit is becoming IPO because there's nobody that can, you know, have an accretive acquisition of that company and justify it. But, you know, for most of us, MA is the most positive outcome of an angel-backed or venture-backed company. So I kind of talk about this hierarchy in my in my first book on in the chapter of M&A, that like, probably the lowest on the totem pole, like the worst outcome is an aqua hire, but at least, you know, getting something back is better than nothing. And maybe you have uh, investors get made whole. Often this is where the company is buying um, the team. So instead of going to Max Shapiro for headhunting, they actually just say, you know what, we need more like Groupon, you know, daily deal DNA. Let's just go buy this company and then get these people into into our company and spend and, and split them up. They don't necessarily need to be staying together, you know. So they might want to hire more generative AI people to get that injection of DNA into the t- into the existing company, as opposed to just hiring them one at a time. Other times it's a team buy, and you want to keep them together, but you're not um, keeping the technology that they've built already. You're repurposing them onto something new. Technology buy is where. They obviously want to keep the technology that was built, you know, by the startup. And so the price tag is going up and up and up. So as you go from one to two to three, you know, it's going up. Business asset would mean it's got revenue. And so if we, you know, if, if someone is selling something into a into a semiconductor fab, and then it gets acquired by one of these big companies that's, that has a sales team selling into every fab in the world, they can say... All right, what's the discounted cash flow of this business today? If I buy this business asset and integrate it into my existing sales team, you know, like there's companies like Microsoft that sell into every government, large corporation, small, medium business, consumers. They literally have a distribution into absolutely everything. Strategic asset is more like who's going to get who's going to get, um, you know, what was it, uh, Instagram. You know, Instagram was a really uh, the ideal perfect storm where you had Twitter said that they wanted to buy Instagram, and my wife and I don't really pay attention to Facebook so much. But there was a time when on a Sunday morning she wakes up and my wife literally gets the phone out and looks at the photos from the barbecue yesterday. And if Twitter had bought had bought Instagram, she probably would have moved from Facebook over to Twitter. So Facebook, newly you know uh, publicly traded with a hundred billion valuation spent $1 billion just to stop Twitter from getting photos and moving that important thing. So you had this perfect storm of like VCs willing to fund it, VCs hearing that Twitter wants to buy it, and then putting more money into it at a ridiculous, you know, valuation when there was actually no real business asset uh, revenue. And it was a strategic asset. The last one is like the Mona Lisa. There's only one. And and I guess, and, you know... Instagram was kind of a Mona Lisa, but like YouTube is a, is, a, is a great example of the Mona Lisa. There's only one, you know? So w- what what does AI mean for valuations and startups and exits and having a moat and defensibility? I mean, w- what we're witnessing right now is that some of these startups are are getting into a real product with very, very little funding. Like it's kind of like the old, you know, software engineering, programming languages were like assembly, assembling lots of commands. And then there was C and then there was C++ and Python. Like the new programming language seems to be just like English or even German, if the the generative AI can understand it. And so you're seeing people come up with stuff like, I haven't seen a company do this. It's just my own idea. If you could make a product so quickly, maybe you could make something like Kayak, like a copy of Expedia Kayak and say... I'm not going to charge anything, so you can offer discounts to users if they, you know, bu- book that hotel, car, airplane ticket on our, you know, travel engine. Um, but we require that you take the payment using our version of Square. So you have this like Trojan horse thing of like launch a product just to capture business away from Square on the payment side, and you know y- you kind of have companies that can underprice. Large existing incumbents. So it's a little bit of a scary time for a big business like Square who's raised just train loads of cash. They have a big liquidation stack, they got to pay back, and they can't offer you know their service offering very cheaply compared to another company that's kind of using generative AI, you know, you know large language models to just kind of quickly, quickly, rapidly develop applications. And and it means that like even a bad engineer becomes a 10x engineer, you know like like they can use this stuff to check code and rapidly. It's like it's like RAD, rap, rapid application development. People talked about in the early 90s. We're really seeing rapid application development and really, so, you know, object oriented software come to life really really fast. I kind of think of the example of Bruce Lee. Have you ever seen a Bruce Lee movie where like Bruce Lee literally? beats the shit out of like 50 guys and they're almost like lining up to get punched by him well so bruce lee is like the 10x kung fu engineer now every guy that was getting beaten up is becoming a bruce lee 10x engineer so if you raise a certain amount of funding you can literally get more done quickly and even you know marketing people are able to do more stuff quickly if you think of students are able to write their paper in seconds, or at least get a big start on it, and then maybe edit it to make it sound like it wasn't written by a computer. Um, You could just think of like a junior team of people you hire in your marketing or sales department doing more faster. So I think it really, it's an interesting change agent for, for what's happening with the market. But where are we now with this vintage of venture capital, or for this vintage of investments that you know US angels are making i mean w- what tends to happen pretty fast is that valuations really come down so when the stock market goes from 47x down to 5x back up to 10x this there's a bit of a lag but that should translate to startup valuations coming down as well however it's not linear what tends to happen is like um there was a company that was trying to raise 25 million dollars in the summer of 2021 and it was basically one of these things where they said they have a CAC of about $1,000 and they get paid back within one to three months. So it's a pretty fast payback. And then the LTV is a minimum of 18000 So what, what happens in a bull market is the VCs and investors say, if you drop like a million dollars into the top of this sausage machine, you get $18 million out the bottom of it. So instead of raising 5000000 million, let's raise $25 million. And if you're, but the thing that remains somewhat constant is that at a late seed or a series A, you typically have 20% dilution. So that's another kind of magic rule to hold on to in a storm. It, so if they're only selling 20%, but they were going to invest 25 million, you start seeing valuations hitting like 100, 100 plus. That deal actually closed in October of 2021 when the market had really corrected and was starting to cool down but ahead of the Putin invasion that really sunk the stock market that they ended up raising seven and a half million on a pre of 32. So, so that the the decrease in valuation literally went from like 125 down to 32. And we're seeing this like over and over and over again, we recently invested into a company that was a four and a half million round on a pre of 17. And they were trying to raise like 8 million on 80 going into it and then that's where it landed so what what ends up happening is that we are investing at lower price entry points the valuations are lower and you kind of expect you know vcs lie to you when they say you're going to be paying the fund back in like two to three years they tend to take at least five years for the big ones you might have sold something on the secondary market with a big uptick but if you hold for five years in a day you get qualified small business stock exemption. So we pay zero tax on the first 10 million of gain or 10X your cost. So if we did a 5 million check and made a gazillion gain, we pay zero tax, our LPs that are US taxpayers, citizens and green card holders on the first 50 million of exit. So bottom line, invest, buy low, sell high is you know, not a bad idea for being an investor. And that, and that tends to be what, what's happening. Uh wait a second. I screwed up the let me get the zoom out of the way, get back to presentation mode. Okay. Um, you know, the other thing that happens is that like I remember in San Francisco, you know, young people that work at a startup are literally refusing to work at the startup unless they have like a Michelin star restaurant. And then everybody in New York gets an Uber ride home every night like they work at Goldman Sachs, except for that startup isn't making money like Goldman Sachs. So Austerity means the startups are spending much better. If you look at that startup that we invested in in October of 2021, the round went from 25 million to seven and a half million. You can bet that that CEO is going to make a spreadsheet and budget to not run out of money for 24 months. And so his 18 or 24 month runway worked on seven million compared to 25 million. And so they're just spending much, much smarter. And that really translates to talent. So what happens with every economic downturn is that guys like Zuckerberg want to fire all the lazy fat people that are taking cigarette smoking breaks and wants to just focus on the good employees that are the Bruce Lee 10X badass engineers. And so they basically just can fire everybody without the need for lawyers or a double, triple protected minority person. And so that means that the startups are not competing as badly with the large tech titans that hire a lot of people with humongous salaries. And then, even at the startup level, they're raising seven and a half million, making that last for 24 months compared to 25 million. And, you know, VCs are basically worthless roadkill. It's all about execution and it's all about talent. So, this is really just such an important thing that uh, there's a huge amount of talent. And a lot, a lot of large companies will start axing uh, projects that are not core. To the business. And so these guys want to keep working on whatever video on demand or whatever the hell thing it is. And so you see a lot of opportunities arise with a lot of startups that are born out of people being laid off or projects getting, you know, getting axed. You know, there's also a return to DD. I mean, in in the peak we, you know, we, we, if nothing else, we understand a company before we invest in it. And when we're examining the revenue, I'm like, wait a minute. So this revenue is not the new automated software. This is, you're doing this manually with like people in Manila or India or something. And then the founder's like, wait a minute, you're asking a lot of questions. I have a feeling we're just not a cultural fit here because this it's already Tuesday and we're going to close the round on Friday. And I was like, all right, well, if you're not letting us do due diligence, we're not going to invest. Those same CEOs started calling us back saying, hey, could you send me your list of questions? I'd like to answer every single one of them. So this is just better for everybody. Um, you know, it, it, You know, when you enter into a real economic downturn, you start to have must-have technology. So even a large company can't afford to be wasting money when they, they could spend less money on the software than it costs to hire one person to do this task and the software does it more perfectly, doesn't make mistakes, and the software company is focused on this, so it'll continue to be best of breed, you start to have like, uh, I need this technology to save money or to make more money, you know? Uh, you know. So at the end of the day, uh, this vintage of 2023, 2024 <clears throat> is expected to own more of the company at the time of exit. And generally have lower liquidation stacks, you know, to get out from underneath. And the generative AI stuff uh, is truly enabling startups to build faster, build better, build with less, with less funding. So I think it's an interesting time for early stage investors. You know, if 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 any of you guys have heard me speak, you probably, this is like the longest lasting slide I've ever had. It basically on the left, it shows like pre-seed to seed all the way to late stage pre-IPO growth and late stage secondaries. And on, on the Y-axis, if you're high, that means you're overpaying. So it's like if you're buying a, a house in Tiburon that's worth $7 million and you paid $15 million, that's bad. You overpaid. If you're low on it, that's good. You got a good deal on it. And I basically think that what happens when there's a big shift in an economic downturn I think the early stage investors are probably getting a better entry price point. So that's good. Up here, I kind of think of this as demo day. That's where the optimal they've made. There's only a finite supply of equity being sold, but they've managed to increase the number of people dialed in for that Y Combinator demo day. Tourists, everybody, it's kind of crowded. So the demand drive against that supply means a high price point. We invest at that point too occasionally, but this is how I feel about it. By the time that demo day is over and the company is really getting into revenue, there's not as many investors, really. Now this has grown enormously during my career that there's so many VCs out there. But it's still, I, I tend to think late stage seed is a really great opportunity. Series A, I think of as like low risk, high reward opportunity. And it's a bit of a tale of two cities of when the inflection point is. But in general, by the time you get to series B, the company's got a lot of revenue. People don't care so much of who the VC is. All the big decisions have already been made. you know, but but you, you, these guys tend to have lower multiples. And like, you know, if John Ritchie and I had a one billion dollar fund and all we do is two x the fund and we raise a new fund every two or three years, that means we would have two hundred million dollars of carry from only a two x multiple. And that satisfies, You know, the endowments and pension funds and insurance companies who have to move these large pools of money, but it doesn't perform very well. So that late stage doesn't perform well. If you invested in Square at a hundred billion dollar valuation a few months ago, um, a few months later, after the market corrected, they raised money at a 50 billion dollar valuation. So, in my opinion, being in the late stage growth area, is the most dangerous place to be investing if you think the market could get corrected downwards. But, you know, I don't worry about these kids. Their children should be able to afford a lift ticket if they're, you know, raising funds that are a billion dollars, you know, or bigger. You know, the other thing I would say is that if you're investing early stage, if you're an angel, you really want to hit that 15 deals a year kind of deal flow that John was talking about with membership. Because, basically the earlier you invest, the more you really want to have, um, uh, a high degree of diversification. So diversification is how you neutralize the singular risk of any one investment. And if you're investing really late stage, you can have a more concentrated, you know, a more concentrated portfolio. Um, because if, if you lose one or two of them, you know, the other ones will make up for it. Um, you know, just, you know, a little bit on us, uh, with our funds being relatively small, Our we're currently raising money for Fund 4. We've already had a first closing. I like to make sure I'm never a zombie, so we want to make sure we don't run out of money. We'll probably be fully deployed by Fund 3 around October, um, and we're ready to start shooting out of two funds at the same time. So there'll be a little bit of overlap of maybe four or five companies, and then Fund 4 will just take over you know, if for people that invested in our first fund, they're, they're getting about seven times their money back. So 100K is getting you 700K back. Fund two, even, you know, marking some some things down, uh, that appears to be a 12X cash on cash return. So 1.2 million for uh, 100K. And, you know, given how illiquid it is, you know, you kind of need, you kind of need a premium because we've raised money from a lot of individual people. We've come up out of necessity with a model to return the fund faster that a lot of times we're investing in that late seed series a, or even a little bit of pre-revenue pre-seed pre-product where we know the founders and the the value they they tend to raise larger rounds at larger valuations. And we introduce them to a ton of VCs. And so you tend to see the valuation go up and it became almost like unethical or obscene that we're sitting here reporting to our LPs, hey, guys, the fund is way up on this deal. We invested in superhuman at $8 million. It's valued at $2.5 billion, but we haven't returned any money. So what we're doing now is we're starting to sell between 5% and 25% of what our fund owns in a single deal to return the fund faster. So people can either spend that money or, you know, it kind of gets rid of the illiquidity that it took so many damn years to get out of this thing, but we give our LPs the option to recycle that exit cash into an SPV and stay in the deal. And so option one, take the cash option two, um, you're saying, well, I put hundred K in your fund. You're paying me back 25 K now that the company is raising a hundred million dollar round at a unicorn valuation. It'll probably two X from here. They're going to hire more engineers, automate more stuff tap into more data sets, you know, spend more in marketing, that 25k could be 50k in a year if I just wait, but there's no promise it'll be liquid in a year. So option two is don't take the cash recycle into the SPV. And option three is you say, well, you know, I'm going to put in 500k into the SPV and recycle because I believe it'll 2x to 4x. It's not a huge return like the fund, but you know, if I put in 500K and I get a million back in a year, or if it drags on for another two years, and my 500K comes back at like, you know, 2 million, I'm happy with that. And that might be good for, you know, for an individual. Um, so I think, I think I'll think i stop there. And maybe, you know, turn this around into a discussion. Are, are you, you know, maybe on the AI side? Uh, uh, how How are you feeling about investing in companies that can make a product so quickly or overnight, where you'd almost wonder like, where's the moat or or, or what are you seeing on the positive or negative side as investors with some of these companies that are like a thin layer on top of chat GTP or, you know, open AI or, or, you know, maybe they've developed their own thing, but if they develop their own thing, that tends to take more time and money.
2: Hey, Andrew, this is Duran from Michigan Cityside Ventures. It's funny because um, we just uh, internally did some investigation, if you will, and we discovered there's actually three layers of AI, uh, and most investors don't necessarily understand the, the nuances. There's AI as a feature, there's AI as a platform, and there's an AI as an industry. And uh, you know, we're not interested in features, we some platform, but we're more interested in the AI as an industry because that's solving real problems to real industry that's gonna last. But all those mushroom after the rain, like the chat this and the chat that, that they're gonna come and gonna go because there's really nothing behind it. It's putting a different name and and uh, so, and plus we have two big issues with AI right now, right? The regulators that didn't decide how they're gonna do it. And you know the internet did not become the internet until the TCPIP protocol got invented and then everything went boom. So I think we're waiting for the AI protocol, if you will, or the AI set of tools, and then decide what the regular is going to do with that. And the third one, and the second one, is that we don't have the computing power to make AI that useful yet. So we need to the supercomputer, the quantum computer, the photonic computer, whatever is coming up there. It's not a the technology is there, but it cannot grow itself because there's no computer power to do it. So, you know, if you look as an investor looking for so the sexy and the hot and you know, whatever is question out there, stay away from it because it's going to come and it's going to go. There's Yesterday we discovered there's, since beginning of 2023, there's 3,624 different type of chat got invented. And only 10 of them are being used. Yeah, I
1: mean, sometimes, you know, you squint your eyes and it's hard to tell one apart apart from the other. I mean, at, at some point, it almost looks like the actual generative AI companies could be kind of a commodity of open source and Mm. it's the data, the data wars of who has access to, you know, GitHub, all all the code that's on GitHub, you know, like, are are they going to give you access? And the answer is no, you know, so I think that the data wars is sort of an interesting, interesting thing. And then there's just, you know, uh, companies doing whatever it is that they're doing, but benefiting. It's like if if your if your eighth grade kid can do his homework in five minutes, you know, people that you're hiring can be more efficient and, and are working faster and better, which is interesting, especially is. on you know what are capital requirements.
2: Yeah, say that uh, the whole AI development marketplace right now. is become the, the p- fishing pond for the big guys, for the Oracle and the Microsoft and the Google. They're just watching what's out there and they're going to pick up the one they like to augment what they're doing. So it's a question, do you build those AI in order to become the next AI company or you build it to grab enough attention for the big guys to maybe see, well, we can buy you out. So we actually expect there going to be a lot of lower uh, exit with those AI companies because they're going to exit much faster. Because if you don't, your history.
1: Okay, and what are you guys seeing in valuations in the market? What's your what? What's the sentiment of the deal flow you're seeing?
2: I I'm with you completely. I see a lot of the founders. Uh, we have a watch list as we call it. And We kind of put company on a watch list, and we see a lot of founders coming with the tail between the legs um, after they came about two years ago with a big ask, and now they're coming like well, you know. So like, there's a lot of what they call bridge round right now in the market. And yeah. uh, I keep saying uh, to the investor be aware because if the bridge round is because they really want to push the Series A down the road and they don't need the cash, great. But half of them, if not more, are underperforming. That's why they go to the bridge round because they know the VC is not going to buy it. So you have to be kind of careful. But valuation is definitely down. The size of the, the, size of the round is definitely down, as you said. They're raising less money because it doesn't require that much to deliver technology. Um, and, um, and yes, I mean, the, the, the ego, the big ego is kind of, kind of going away. And, um, it's interesting that the investor now a little a bit more leverage.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, this is what I'm talking about with the lag, you know, like, like stock market corrects and everyone can see that real time LPs are panicking cause the ratios they're overweighted into venture VCs get the memo pretty quickly from the LP community. And then there's a big bid-ask discrepancy of the startup is trying to raise money at last year's peak valuations when there's been an adjustment. And so the divide between the bid and the ask is not reaching a deal. And so uh, the company continues to spend. Startups tend to not be good at lowering costs. They're like the US government. Once you start a program, you can't get rid of it. And so they continue to serve the Michelin star sandwiches to their aristocrats that work at the startup in San Francisco. And so, but then then they start burning through that cash and they're facing a zero bank balance in a few weeks. And that's where you start to see smaller financing rounds done. When you say bridge round, what kind of runway are these companies seeing with, with the bridge in this case?
2: It's it's a, it's exactly what you talked about earlier. Historically, you know, you're talking about 12, eighteen to twenty-four months runway. Historically, uh, when the market was a bit more bullish, the, the 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 company used to raise money for twelve months to eighteen months, like a shorter kind of runway, because they were comfortable that they can get to the Series A and they can raise the next run. But now it's difficult, so you see all those bridge runs because they miscalculated how much cash they need for the runway until they raise the next amount of money and they find themselves almost at the cliff because we predicted 14 months and we actually need 24 months cash. So they go back and they say, okay, we do a bridge round um, and, um, and uh, some of it it's the uh, indication of uh, poor cash management. Some of it's miscalculation and some of it is they really doing well and they just wanna get to the point that they not gonna give the farm away for the series A and they, and they wanna push a little bit, but yes, The miscalculation of runway for sure.
1: Yeah, I think when there's an economic downturn, our framework of not investing in a financing that provides less than 18 months. So 18 months is our minimum, Mm -hmm. uh, that becomes 24 months because things, you know, things can get slower and, and like the, the predicted revenue growth might be slower. And people are not adding adding headcount that results in more seats of that software. And there's just like, like longer sales cycles. It just it's good to go from 18 to 24. Um, I know Dave Izuka, you guys are a very early stage, right? What are you seeing on uh, or how early how early are you guys? Or, or are you doing the fun the startup formation
2: yourself, or, or are you investing in outside companies? I think you've got your mute button on. Typically, I'm a one one-person show here. So, uh, but what's been basically happening over because of uh, a little bit more volatility in the last 12 to 18 months, I've been spending a little bit more time looking at companies that are a little bit more mature. So I'm not doing the raw startups anymore. It's more like a venture studio model or something like that, where I'm, I'm basically trying to add more value on the roadmap and the architecture and trying to add more value to prepare them for the next large round. So I guess. So how much roadmap, revenue,
1: how how much revenues do these companies typically have when you're getting
2: well, involved? In some cases they don't have much at all. It depends on what they're building. Right. I guess what I've been looking at most recently is being a little bit more discriminating about what kind of uh, uh, what are they building? What's the secret sauce? How much validation uh, is there, and whatnot? So I'm, I'm tending to spend more time on the qualification of the companies as opposed to the revenue ramp. And,
1: yeah. yeah, you know what I've observed historically, things have changed. It used to be like with the dot com crash, and I had a front row seat to that. And then there was like the 2008 you know crash again. What 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 you used to see was a flight to quality as the investors would say, so investors are, when when it's a real bull market, they get more greedy and more confident and have higher conviction levels and they, they invest earlier. And so like, you know, benchmark capital, big check on a company with no revenue. Mm -hmm. Then there's the, the LPs say, Hey, stop playing with my money. And they get more conservative. They want to see more revenue. So you saw the late stage pre IPO people got destroyed like they're buying shares and squared a hundred billion, and and it, and then they're at fifty billion. And they have to grow into that valuation and never sell. Um, and the early stage investors, like the Ron Conways, that were funding pre revenue, pre product, their portfolio gets cut off from the food, the investing food system, and they starve. So that that was the old thing of like two thousand one, two thousand nine. I think that by by kind of 2009 ish, maybe more recently, we've had an explosion, a Cambrian explosion of three seed companies that want to be like Ron Conway. And there's people with personalities that don't even have the like uh, attention span to focus on something. And they just enjoy investing in five companies a week and then getting so much diversification that it's almost impossible to lose money. And so you actually have a bunch of pre-seed micro VC players that are not just in the Valley in New York, but they're everywhere now, you know, in Europe and everywhere in Israel, that, that they continue to invest after a crash, celebrating a little bit of a correction in valuation. And so they don't get cut off from the food supply. And if anything, those people are a little out of touch with the LP community and I guess like the stock market. And they almost continue to keep valuations high on that early stage and valuations don't really get corrected until you come in a little bit later into the late seed is what what I've observed so that's the change like you're probably safe to be investing in a seed fund or continuing to invest whereas it could have been just death and destruction uh into you know after the dot com or even 08 to some to a lesser extent
0: Any more I, I, questions? Yeah, oh, comments. I I have a uh, I, I, you know I have an observation. I see a lot of deals, uh, you know, across sectors: life science, software, hardware. Um, you know, when Uber and Airbnb were kind of like, you know the thing to talk about, every startup you know was going and saying, "I'm the Uber of this, I'm the Airbnb of that," and I kind of like expected the same thing with Chat GPT and you know, there's some of that, but not as much as I expected. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by that. I think what what that tells me is that, you know, these uh, these NLP uh, 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 models and revenues, you know, I mean, they can only do some stuff right now, right? Uh, I expect that it's going to be you know, much, much wider in terms of applications. You know, I mean, I have a 15 year old, I'm trying to figure out whether I should encourage him to code and look at becoming a software engineer whether software engineers are going to disappear, right? Uh, I I said, you know, I suspect that the world was always needs good software engineers, but you know, some of them will be displaced, but I don't see, you know, uh, this new AI thing, you know, really being transformative like across the board, uh, you know, it seems to be focused on, on chats and stuff. That's, you know, that, that where this chat application for that, so I don't know what, what others. I
1: think, I think, I think it's easy to focus on, you you know, you pay 20 bucks a month and you get your chat GTP and, and what are the limits of what you can do with it. But if you, if you're an engineer, you're able to interact with it much, much more like, like a single person can become a, a data scientist. Um, so I, I do think it is transfer, transfor, transformational. The We invested in two companies, Kindy and Prion, that um, have been developing technology that can read thousands and thousands of documents with far greater accuracy. And um, so, and I think that those companies are quite capital intensive. Like we normally try to avoid capital intensive companies, but the people that they employ are not on baby salaries that it, it, it's actually expensive. And it starts to look a little bit more like a semiconductor company, but at least they control their own destiny and they're not like at the whim of Sam Altman deciding to pull the rug out from underneath you or like being dependent on Zuckerberg for a platform. Uh, But, but I think it's a big deal. I mean, the, I I often think as a test of, do I want to invest in this company? I say to myself, would I want to quit my job and do sales for that startup? And sometimes you immediately are like, hell no, this is a really hard sell. And now that I think of it that way, maybe I shouldn't invest. Another one I think of is like, uh, does it make sense for somebody, for a client to pay for their annual software license, you know, as opposed to hire someone to do that, you know? and if you can get yourself to that point it starts to look like a good investment and that this makes economic sense and i think that you're just seeing a lot more companies get to that point faster uh, you know from understanding how to use the technology beyond you know chat sessions that a civilian is using it for
0: yeah i mean i think it's it's an issue of like the you know kind of like the the transformation curve right i mean i read somewhere i don't know if that's true that you know, the level of proficiency of, you know, writing computer program using a chat GPT like engine is, you know, basically computer software graduate, you know, with maybe one year worth of experience. And I'm assuming that that's going to, you know, change in the future, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think it's compounding quite quickly. So I think, you know, but, you know, we've been saying for many years in our deck, our primary investment thesis is investing in startups that automate human workflows and leverage data sets, kind of like Palantir for everything. And uh, now, now, kind of the whole world is waking up to automate human workflows and leverage the data sets, that it's only as good as the data set. So, But I think that I think there's a lot of applications for companies that have their own proprietary data, you know, like, you know, uh, a healthcare life science company, how much do they pay people to review clinical trial data and to kind of, it's almost like blockchain smart contracts. You can programmatically remain in compliance. You see a side effect in um, in the clinical, in the clinic like a phase three clinical trial and then it immediately goes into the marketing or, 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 you know, or you have a drug that's out there, they they get information and they immediately, you know, automate, update that stuff. Um, and that's like an enormous saving of money. If you can, you know, if you can speed the release of a drug every day, the drug is not being sold as like a million dollar of lost revenue, you know? So I, I just think it's, I think it's a very exciting vintage. You know, look at the end of the day, there was it, early stage companies and company founders were getting lazy and didn't want to go through due diligence. That's over. It's back to do the work. They were raising bigger rounds than they should have. So the valuations were higher. The liquidation stacks were bad. The spending was bad. We're now in lower entry point, austerity, due diligence is back in fashion and talent is available. And we're in a technological cycle that we didn't have all the components until now, and you could argue that we're short on GPUs, but um, it seems to be getting done somehow
0: I want to ask Doran what he meant by uh, AI industry as opposed to like AI you know uh, features
2: and platforms? well, um, there's I mean we are in Michigan, so we are in the heart of that mode of electro electromotive industry, if you will um. And we hear from different CTO of large companies like General Motors, uh, Tenellis, and a couple others, uh, John Deere, that they believe that the way that AI, that's why I disagree with the statement that it's all about the chat. Chat is just uh, the kind of the, what I call it, the, uh, the after effect of all of it, but the real AI work is gonna be done on an enterprise level. So for example, there's a there was an animation show in Michigan and there's a company out of Michigan that created the, uh, a specific system so if you let's say gm gm uh in order to be competitive the one thing they need to do is to have everybody access to the company's intelligence what does in company intelligence mean is the experience of the people that worked for 30 years okay so the people working for five years so if i can have the ability to to take my whatever system we call it call it gm and hey gm can you tell me how i do ha 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 in the uh, and their system able to go to the entire knowledge the company acquired the last hundred years and provide the person asked the question, here's what uh, the last, uh, I don't know, top engineers did with this problem. And here's, a, you know what I mean? Access to data. So they believe they're gonna create their own brain, the GM brain or the GM twin digital, whatever you call it. And uh, eventually it's gonna work like a, like a blockchain. So GM gonna have their own brain and Stanley's gonna have their own brain and Fiat's going to have their own brain and eventually to be able to talk to each other by permission. Um, but the, the first objective for those companies is not to search the world for knowledge, but to make their internal knowledge much more accessible, much more effective for people, such that they need less people to do the job. They take less time and uh, they're investing a lot of money in it uh, in order to do it. So uh, their they vision is that, that five years from now, or three years from now, Every employee at GM is going to have this, whatever they're going to call it, call it uh, Mary on the phone and say, Mary, can you ha-ha and ask questions in natural language? And it's going to tell you what you need to know from the knowledge of the enterprise, um, which is, it's huge. And they are spending billions building it. It's not 20 bucks a month. Ford just put $5 billion for AI development. So, so I get what you're saying. And, and you know it makes a lot of sense, but, you know, there's two parts here. There's the
0: core engine, which is basically, you know, deep AI and deep machine learning. That's been right. going on for years, right? So the, right. the new stuff is the interface between the GM employee and that core engine, right? Yeah. That's, so uh, they, that's they, what's really the chat GPT explosion
2: that we, that we witnessed, is they, that correct? Yeah, well, the open AI created in the world for GM and others, they created the platform to build everything that was missing on top of it. Right. So, so GM now can go and, and take, Look, Watson exists for what, 18 years? Right. The IBM, uh, but he couldn't get to, to, he couldn't use Watson the way they want to until now. Now that it's in the race. Who is going to be the, 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 the supercomputer is going to dominate the world and IBM have a leg of everybody else right now because they already spend, I don't know, years developing it. But OpenAI and a couple other companies and such OpenAI brought this platform to say, okay, you can take it to the next level now and now it's gonna explode. The only two, again, the only two uh, issues with AI is regulator, computer power, and then um, the biggest issue the regulator is dealing with is you need to prove the, the, the um, uh, what do you call it, the, the um, false positive. So you will have to have a, a mechanism inside of AI to tell you this verified information 100%, and this is questionable. Um, in order to make it publicly used, especially in medical or diagnostic and things of that nature, so that's kind of the next level of development. But Microsoft put ten billion into it. Oracle putting five billion into it. Ford putting four. Uh, GM I don't know how much, but they all is going to spend a fortune building their own intelligence, uh, organization intelligence, and that's the biggest money that you're going to see in the next ten years. In my opinion, is corporations going to invest billions in develop their own intelligence. I I think they may have a bigger problem, too, in that, you know, we've got the aging up of all the baby boomers, so an incredible amount of knowledge is leaving those organizations right now. Within the next 10 years, they'll be drained. Yep. And the AI is going to give AI, like an organization, intelligence is going to allow them to not be in this problem in the future. So as long as you work in a company, your knowledge being shared and consumed by Organization challenges. When you leave, then I'll still stay there.
0: Yeah. All right. So, it's uh, 10:59. It. The, the The meeting is scheduled to go until 11. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew, I'm guessing that you uh, um, have um, uh, something else to do. Um, uh, I know I do uh, in about you know 10-15 minutes. So maybe we we can um, uh, you know say thank you. Uh, the uh, the email uh, is, is 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 right there in the chat. Uh, if you have any, uh, uh, you know, if you have any follow up, please do it directly with, with Andrew. Um, thank you all for for being for being on the call. And uh, as I put in the chat box, we have an investor meeting tomorrow at nine thirty. Um, you know, you can uh, you can still register if you uh, if you have not done so. Uh, great conversation uh um i expect that you know at the end of the day we're gonna have um you know lots of opportunities uh and uh hopefully at lower valuations <laughs> okay john thanks so much thank you, thank you. Okay, take thank care you. everyone
2: bye Bye-bye.